HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Katema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I try to demystify this program with my good guests. And my guest today is Jamie Graves, who is a Japanese portfolio manager at Skronik Wines, which is a leading wine and spirits importer and distributor based in New York City. He joined us on episode 114 and discussed his very interesting path to get into the world of sake and technical questions that you'd not normally find answers to. So um, today, we'll talk about shochu. Jamie recently had an extensive tour to shochu distilleries in Japan. And shochu is yet to be known in the US, but it is as popular as sake in Japan. So we'll discover shochu through Jamie's intriguing stories from the trip and his job at the Skernik. 
But quickly, before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and now,、um, now Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritagevideonetwork.org. Now, let's start a conversation with Jamie Graves. Hi, Jamie. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for,、uh, for having me again. So, I'm very exciting. So, you're back from the trip. So,、uh, but for listeners who have not listened to episode 114, please tell us about your background. So, like, where you're from,、uh, where you, why you speak perfect Japanese, why you get into sake, and so forth in the short version.、Uh, okay.、Um, yeah. So, I am originally from New York City.、Uh, I grew up here and sort of in the surrounding area in the suburbs. Um, when I finished college, I got a English teaching job in Japan、um, and pretty quickly、uh, got into the food over there. It was the thing I was sort of most intrigued and interested by. And I figured, hey, if I'm you know, going to be living here for a couple of years, I'd, I'd really like to、uh, learn about、uh, as much as I could about the food、um, while I'm here. I was just really interested in it.、Um, and then when I lived there for a few years, I kind of worked in restaurants and、um, really worked on.、Uh, Being able to、uh, speak and read Japanese, it was another thing I, I figured if, if I'm there, I might as well kind of really try to、uh, master that as much as I could.、Uh, I moved back、um, after five years,、uh, worked in、uh, sort of great,、uh, authentic, kind of high end Japanese restaurants、um, here in New York for、uh, it was about 10, 10 11 years.、Um, and then for the past two years,、uh, like you said, I've been working at、uh, this really great、um, wine、uh, importer and distributor called、uh, Skernik Wines here in New York. Okay, so and you are the Japanese portfolio manager at Skarnik. So,、mm-hmm. um, the Skarnik, I, I really think,、um, you know, to me, if it's labeled, it's imported from Skarnik. Okay, I'll buy it, that kind of、yeah. thing. So, <laughs> yeah, so th- does that apply to the sake, Japanese sake?、Um, yes, I, unfortunately, we don't do any sake directly、um, ourselves quite yet. So, unfortunately, you, you can't find that,、um, that Skernik label、uh, on the back of a bottle of sake to sort of guide you to you know, what you should be buying. I, I, that's something I'm kind of working on for the future. And what we're, we're、mm. talking about today from the trip was to、um, hopefully, uh, hopefully meet some, some great partners. So, we're working on that. But definitely,、um, yeah, the, the back label on, on wines.、Um, You know, the, the company's been around since, since 1987 and、uh, really started with a, a focus on quality.、Um, and now, you know, there's, you can really get sort of you know, wine from really any part of the world and all kinds of price points now. But really, the, the initial reputation was built on you know, stuff that they thought was just really delicious, really great quality.、Um, mm-hmm. And it sort of slowly expanded from there. Cool.、Mm-hmm. So、um, now you're almost、um, you're a little bit two years with Skernik,、mm-hmm. I think. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> And、uh, so, how many?、Uh, last time we spoke, we, you had about 30 sake breweries to work with. And how many? Now, how many sake breweries and shochu distillates do you have? Now,、um, I actually I realized you'd, you'd notified me of this question and I, I promptly forgot to actually research it. But we've just added a couple more. So I'd say we're about 35, maybe close to 38、uh, different producers right now that we're working with. We've added a couple.、Um, and it's about, I was just looking at this before I came, I think it's about 70 or so different,、um, 70 different kinds of sake alone. But then with shochu in there, it's going to get up to about like. 80, 85 or so.、Wow. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, people, Japanese alcohol equals sake,、mm-hmm. but shochu 
is huge. Yeah, it's it's something. I mean, when I lived there, um, I lived there from 2002 to 2007, and that was kind of right in the middle of uh, what is now known as like the second shochu boom. And you know, just as kind of a, a guy in your 20s and you're hanging out with other Japanese people that age, that's what everybody was drinking. Mm. Um, I mean, I was I'm talking about kind of the Tokyo area. I mean, before that. Shochu had been more kind of a regional southern thing. Um, I mean, it had always been in Tokyo, but suddenly it was like craft distilleries from southern Japan were suddenly really cool in the Tokyo area, you know, which then spread it to the rest of the country. And I didn't really, you know, I knew we at the time they were talking about a shochu boom and I knew that was happening. But, you know, at the time it was just, um, you know, it wasn't super pricey. It's actually a little bit cheaper than mm-hmm. sake to drink in Japan. So it was, you know, when you're in your 20s and you don't have much money, it was just what we had going out. Um, and I knew there was all these different varieties and stuff. So it's mostly what I drank uh, mm. when I was there. Uh, right, because I think, um, well, by the way, my dad from was from... Kyushu, that's oh, the mainland yeah. <laughs> of production, but he even didn't touch it. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think he had a good memory of the quality when mm-hmm. he was younger. But now the quality is more crap, like you said, mm-hmm. and also, um, good thing about shochu is higher in alcohol, mm-hmm. um, like seventeen, eighteen sake. But the shochu is like around twenty-five, so you can dilute it like other mm-hmm. distilled spirit. Yeah, so it ended up being cheap. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's um, yeah, it's 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 kind of a hard thing for a lot of Americans to wrap their head around because twenty five percent alcohol. We don't really have many things that are really around that mm. level. So it even comes down to like, you know, how many glasses it is, is it okay for me to drink? Like people are aware of that with like spirits. You know, like okay, I can have a glass or two of whiskey um, or uh, wine. You know, they they know they know what pace they can drink at. Shoshu is kind of. Um, you know, you're just not used to that. So that's another kind of tricky thing for mm. it. Um, but like you said, diluted, it's, it's just the easiest, most delicious thing to drink. Right. Um, dangerously easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I think uh, I have to say, you know, when I go to Japan, I tend to drink sake. Mm. And then, I, you know, yes, at some point, um, I feel a little tired of sake. Mm-hmm. And I drink shochu because it's still distilled and clean. Mm. It's cleansing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the big talking points that the shochu industry does within Japan, which I, I think we we find very um, funny uh, from an American perspective. But um, I, I even, this, this actually got a laugh. Uh, there was a, an event, um, I don't know if you were there or not, a, a couple months ago at the, uh, the Japanese ambassador's house. They had a big shochu event um, and there was some... Uh, some American bartenders, high-end high New York City bartenders, uh, who'd been taken on this big shoshu tour, kind of similar to what I did. And they were kind of giving a presentation um, about their tour and about shochu to kind of the general bartending community in New York. And this was at the ambassador's house. And um, a lot of the you know, people, the Japanese people who are going to be speaking, we're talking about how healthy shochu is. Mm. And they're like, oh, it's so healthy. And then, you know, these bartenders get up and they're like, well, as we know, it's it's very healthy, which is kind of funny. We don't think of alcohol as, you know, we inherently just think of it as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in Japan and in a lot of the world, it's so it's so just kind of woven into food culture and just kind of everyday culture um, that it's sort of you can sort of say like, well, you know, you wouldn't quit, you know, you wouldn't mm. quit drinking just because you're doing this. So it's like, oh, it's a healthier right. alternative. So it's lower in sugar um, because it's distilled out. And because it's a little bit lower in alcohol, it's um, kind of, I need to research this, but it's it's been called like the lowest calorie mm. um, thing you can drink when you're drinking like diluted shochu because there's no sugar and the, the alcohol is a little right. bit lighter than other things. So I find it very easy 
to drink it. Like mm. the next day you don't really, I mean, people say shochu doesn't give you hangovers. I can say it definitely can give you a hangover. <laughs> um, from personal experience, anything can. But it's, it's, I find it much easier on your system than a lot of other things. Mm. Yeah, I still remember uh, Stephen Lyman, who's a shochu expert, mm. who joined me here. He said uh, after drinking, uh, he's switching all alcohol he was consuming to shochu. Mm. In three months, he lost like... Like 12 pounds or 15 pounds. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds like yeah, a... Yeah, shochu diet. I guess you can... It's a thing. <laughs> right. Um, okay, but do you know like a, you know, blue zone? Like uh, the blue zones mean like people in living in, in that kind of called blue zone in mm. the world mm-hmm. have the healthiest lifestyle hmm. and diet. And like in Okinawa and Sardinia, the kind mm. of places. And people don't binge on the weekend. Mm-hmm. They small amount alcohol every day. Yeah. And that kind of uh, the key to relax, enjoy mm. a separate life. So rather than binging mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, like... Just have a little bit every day kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I've never actually been to Okinawa as well. It's another place I'm, I'm really desperate to get to mm. and sort of explore Awamori, which is, you know, Shochu's cousin sort of spirit down yeah. there. Yeah. I haven't never been either. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> a Japanese person, but yeah. <laughs> I will eventually. Um, so... Um, I'm just curious, what what are your criteria in selecting breweries and distilleries to work with? That's great. Yeah, so like I said, we're kind of exploring that um, right now. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, fundamentally, and this is kind of a, this is just kind of a, a sort of a broad, you know, non-specific way of putting it. But when you meet when you meet people and and you see the the distillery itself or or the brewery or whatever, you can get a sense pretty much right away of what kind of people they are and what they're doing, like whether they have a clear sense of what they want to do. And I'd say that's probably the number one thing that, um, you know, the, the sake and shochu industry is so traditional and, you know, it's these family businesses that sometimes stretch back hundreds of years or more and there's many generations. So sometimes when you're just born into it, you know, you don't get a sense of what you want to do for it. Mm. Um, so you visit a lot of these places and, you know, they can be making good stuff, but you can, really get a sense they don't know um they don't have a larger sense of what you know what mm. they're um doing out there and traditionally a lot of these play you know what the business model was for well business model what the how these places survived and what they were doing they were just selling locally you know there wasn't a sense of um it was just you're the local maker it's what local people drink and you didn't really have many other options and now of course you know japan you can get just about anything um mm. there so these local breweries uh, some of them are struggling some of them are very smart about how they, um, you know, can kind of differentiate themselves from a lot of the big producers out there, whether that's big shochu producers or other alcohol producers. And some of them are just very much still stuck in this kind of very uh, provincial Mm. mentality. Um, There was one um, producer I visited on this most recent trip, and to me it was so fascinating. This was um, very, like, very far west uh, in Kyushu. I think it was, like, the most western brewery in Kyushu overall. It's like family, very remote. And you got a sense from talking to these guys, it was a really cool old 19th century building. I mean, very evocative, old wooden beams and everything. And they were making some really interesting stuff, but it was kind of all over the place. Like they didn't have a a vision or a focus for what they wanted to do. And we were there tasting shochu, but then they're like, oh, we also make sake. And when I tried it, it was all noticeably sweeter, which I've heard various people say that, you know, Kyushu sake traditionally was sweeter because the um, because the cuisine is sweeter down there. Mm. They, they grow sugar down there, so sugar gets in the sauces, and you need kind of a sweeter sake to, to stand up to that. And I mentioned to these uh, to this uh, um, father and, and son team that were running this place, like, oh, it's interesting you guys have this kind of local 
Um, like they described their sake as like, oh, well, all our sake is quite dry. And I mm-hmm. tasted it. I'm like, this is all much sweeter than normal. And I sort of mentioned like, oh, well, isn't this a Kyushu thing to be sweeter? And they just had no idea. Interesting. They kind of made it the same way they'd always made it, but they don't understand the larger context of these things, which, um, you know, is, is kind of what I find interesting about my position is even, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant about like instructing them about what this thing is, but they don't understand their context of their sake, even within the world of mm. sake. Like they, they, I don't think they'd even really been to any big Tokyo exhibitions to know what they're comparing it to. They just kind of kept on doing it. Mm. Um, so I actually like those guys quite a bit, but you just get a sense of... Um, it didn't seem like a good partnership just because they don't have a real sense of what they want right. to do. Like there's, yeah. Interesting. So because yeah. you have to know what they're doing, even if tradition has to be kept. So that's a very interesting. Yeah. Way. I mean, if you're just selling it locally and that's that's all you want to do, that's great. But if you're, you know, if you want to start selling it in the, a big market like Tokyo or New York, mm. you know, we're absolutely flooded with choices here. And then, so, you know, part of, my job as a distributor and importer selling things here in New York, I have to be aware of what what all the other stuff is available here, what people are um, expect and what they're used to, and and how to find things that are different and unusual mm. um, that can kind of maybe be different from the stuff available right. here. Or if it's the same stuff, like is it at a really good price? Is there something unique about it? Um, so that's kind of, I mean, sort of a long answer to that. Right. Um, you know, well, what do I look for? Yeah. I think that's very important because I, I know a couple, at least uh, maybe several studies case studies that um the younger generation decided i'm not going to succeed this old style mm-hmm. you know sake production or and then go go to tokyo like working for advertising agency mm-hmm. or something like that and realize wow what i was doing is so cool yeah and i go back and then with the knowledge of advertising mm-hmm. and expressing what they're doing which is now important yeah right so global market and the internet so those are the things the packaging is so important to communicate, especially mm. place like America, because yeah. you need the stories to sell. Yeah, it's a, I, I've, I've talked a, a lot um, to people about this, and this is another exciting thing. Um, once we're able to set up doing these things directly, is working um, working on labels and things, because it's having worked in restaurants for so long in New York. Um, there's a lot of sake, and to a lesser extent shochu, but a lot of sake that comes here that is um, they put some kind of really modern or sort of odd looking label on it. It doesn't really look Japanese anymore. Mm. Um, and then you, you should be able to glance at it and be like, oh, that's clearly from Japan. Or that's sake or shochu or whatever. But it should be easy enough for an American to look at and recognize. Um, I mean, mm. in my experience, Americans have the hardest time remembering sake names. But if they come back and ask for it, they'll describe the bottle. Mm. They'll be like, hey, can you give me the one in the, I had one in the blue bottle or it was kind of like, like people, they'll give you these elaborate descriptions, you know, just because they can't remember the name. So it's right. the packaging is super important. It has to connect to the story. You shouldn't change it too much, but it needs to be just appealing enough that Americans can mm. either remember the name um, or, you know, again, right. <laughs> it's not efficient, but just describing what it looked like <laughs> easily. Yeah, it's like, um, I don't know, Shazam, you don't have to sing the song. Now you can take a picture, maybe short, but yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's much easier to yeah. clear labeling. Okay, so um, let's talk about shochu. So first of all, unless there were... Shochu 101 for mm-hmm. listeners who's not familiar with. So yeah. what is shochu? So shochu is uh, it's Japan's native spirit. Um, it's what they uh, the Japanese were making um, before they ever knew what whiskey was or any of these things. They were distilling um, sort of crops and things that they had at hand. Um, so initially it was um, very quickly, and I, I find this an interesting way to think about it, so it makes sense. So initially it was just distilled sake. It's just, you know, the alcohol they were making in Japan is from rice. Um, they learn what distilling is. It's like, okay, let's just distill this. And from what I've heard, um, 
kind of the way that there's all sorts of different types of shochu, like sweet potato and barley um, and rice are sort of the three main ones, and then all kinds of different um, little ones. Uh, basically, from what I understand, it was traditionally southern Japan. There's a lot of agriculture down there. And if they had crops left over at the end of the harvest, um, as a way to preserve them, they would just throw them in with the sake to ferment mm. and then distill it together. And that's how we ended up at all these different types. So it was originally just kind of a rural... Uh, agricultural preservation mm. technique. Um, and that's how you sort of get sweet potato shochu and barley shochu. Um, and then that uh, sort of evolved into what we have uh, now. And it's gotten very much more refined, mm. um, very kind of interesting, uh, but it's very agriculturally based, which is something I find really interesting. Whereas sake is, um, sake traditionally, look into it, it comes out of like rice merchants. It's like rice merchants who had, they couldn't sell all their rice, not all of them, but many of them were these dealers and um and then oh well we have some rice left over like okay let's make let's make some money out of it and make it into sake whereas mm. shochu for, has much more of an agricultural grounding it wasn't really rice farmers making sake it was merchants and things like that mm. whereas shochu was traditionally farmers interesting yeah. so that's why you see may, maybe more clearly the regional aspects like a potato I, is there yeah bali's there i think so yeah i mean it's it's definitely um areas of southern japan i i'm still just dipping my toe into Shochu, I, I'm by no means an expert. Um, but yeah, certain areas, it's like, oh, traditionally it's all barley around here. Or it's all sweet potato. And you can taste the difference, particularly with very small producers. If they're making sweet potato, you can taste the difference of where the sweet potatoes were grown mm. kind of thing. It's very, um, it's, uh, you know, I think terroir is sometimes overused um, as a concept of this regionality and things. But with sweet potato shochu, it, it's amazing how... Um, how different uh, potatoes grown in different areas can taste mm. and different types of potatoes too. Right. Yeah. And uh, so there are two um, grades, kōtsu, right? Yeah. So, and the difference is how it's distilled. So basically one in a pot mm. versus continuous, like yeah. multiple so, distillation. Um, so it's interesting. I actually, um, so the two types, talking about uh, honkaku shochu and um, what is it? Otsurui? Korui mm. otsurui? Mm -hmm. um, and honkaku is, I mean, that's the one you should pay attention to, to the general listeners out there. Honkaku means something like authentic. Um, it's not just a random word they slap on labels. It's like by law, if you see honkaku on there, it can only be distilled once. By law, um, you can't uh, distill it really highly, and um, there's certain only certain ingredients you can use in there, and you can't add anything to it after it's been distilled. So all the flavorings in there have to be fermented together. Mm -hmm. um, so you know you're getting a, a, a spirit of a certain quality and made in a certain way if it's a honkaku right. uh, shochu overall. Yeah. Right. So that the way it's made, that's why even if it's distilled, you have definitely have that barley or potato or rice flavor, which yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, because by law, it can only be distilled once, so... Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this thing we hear all the time with vodka is that, um, you know, oh, it's triple, quadruple distilled. And, the, and it's, <laughs> you know, for those of us who are kind of geeky about alcohol and these things, it's like, well, the more you distill something, the more you're stripping away the character of the base ingredients. Mm. And maybe because shochu was made by farmers who, who grew these things themselves, you know, maybe they they wanted to taste that thing that they'd grown more. So it's um, traditionally was only distilled once. Mm. Um, and so it retains a lot more oils and flavors of that base ingredient. So you can really taste right. uh, what you've gotten there. And then there's obviously technique about fermenting and distilling in those things. But really, um, it, it uh, you can taste the ingredient a lot more. It's really, um, it's, it's what I like a lot about shochu. Mm. Okay, so in essence, that's why you like shochu? Like, you know, even compared to sake, what's special about shochu? Yeah, so, I mean, sake has this real kind of elegance to it. Um, shochu, I think... God, there's a lot of things about it. I mean, it's just got so much flavor. Um, a lot of those flavors are kind of, um, 
a little bit, I think, uh, unusual for Americans, particularly sweet potato at first. Some people love it right off the bat. Um, for some Americans, it's, it's just not a flavor that they're used to. Like they, they don't say that it's, they don't say they dislike it, but they're just kind of like, I don't know how to think about this. Mm. Um, the barley stuff I find is, is much um, easier for your kind of mm. novice shochu drinker to get into. Because, you know, we all know what grains and barley right. And it's particularly like. nutty kind of, you have a taste memory already. Yeah, kind of, right? exactly. Mm. Right. But I think uh, once you happen to like potato, it's kind of a quiet taste. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It. yeah, it's, I mean, it, you know, sweet potato is the most popular style of shochu. It, it's the one that is, uh, there's more sweet potato made than any other kind overall. Um, and once you get into it, I mean, the differences are so, it, it, it there's sort of highs and, you know, um, various expressions and things you get out of sweet potato that are just wild. I mean, I've tasted sweet potato shochu that it tastes like grapes. Mm. Um, I mean, it tastes like other things, but you're like, this is so grapey. And then you taste other ones that um, taste like carrots. Mm -hmm. Like there's, if you make them out of these orange potatoes, it's got the same, what is it, beta carotene in there from carrots. So you literally taste an orange sweet potato and you're like, man, that tastes like carrots. Like the variation you get and sort of the... Um, it's, it's got this sort of haunting quality, um, mm. whereas barley is more kind of like, all right, cool. You know, this is it's this flavor. <laughs> you get it. It's really delicious, um, but I find it uh, sweet potatoes, uh, shochu is compelling the same way that great wine can be compelling. Like you just can't put your finger on it as easily. Mm. So it's a moving target. Yeah, exactly. You never stop. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, so let's talk about your trip. So you... When did you go to Kyushu and southern Japan? Um, I was there in, um, for about eight days in March. Mm. Um, it was the very first time I'd been to southern Japan. Um, mm. People think, I mean, I lived there for five years and people are like, oh, why did you never get to Kyushu? And I, I'm always like, man, I mean, there's so much to explore in Japan in any given area. And I always felt bad or missing out leaving any area that I was in just because I, I still felt like there was so much to explore there. So I didn't, Kyushu was almost like a whole other world. I was like, I know if I go down there, it's going to, you know, it's, I didn't want to do it halfway. I didn't want to just dip my toe in kind of thing. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, I was there in mid-March for about eight days um, and visited 14, I think it was 14 different um, uh, shochu distilleries, some of which made sake as well. Mm. Yeah, And actually one surprise sake brewery at the end too. There was a uh, Japan, I visited Japan's newest sake brewery. It was started about a year ago. What? Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a shochu distillery that had been making it for a while. And I think it was the younger brother in the family got really into the idea of making sake and he worked with, uh, there's a great brewery called uh, Toyo Bijin. Mm. Um, and he worked with them, I think for a couple of years and he just moved back and they'd built this new kind of boutique brewery on this, this is on Iki Island, um, mm. which is very close to Korea. It's almost, there's like a, one other island in Japan that's closer to Korea, but this is the second closest. Um, and it was on this, like we were just visiting the shochu distillery. He's like, oh, we got a sake brewery too, if you're interested in that. We drove for like five minutes mm. and it was all brand new equipment. Everything was sparkling new, um, kind of small and boutique. And, you know, it's, to me, it's wild because mostly the story in the sake industry is how things aren't going well. And here's, right. here's somebody who's literally built a brand new brewery that's trying to make great high-end you know, mm. sake. And it was delicious. It was great. It's like a silver lining. You know, people, the people just keep saying that sake industry is declining, but mm. it's really hopeful to hear yeah. that. Right. So how was sake? It was good. It was great. It was delicious. I mean, very, very pretty. You could see that he'd, he'd worked at Toyo Bijin. Like mm. that kind of, Toyo Bijin has this very clear, defined sort of pretty style to it. And you could very much see that that was kind of informing what he was making. Mm. Awesome. So, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, so the, out of, you know, you said 14 distilleries, that's a lot of distilleries. Mm -hmm. So um, what was the impression? Like, did you see 
like we discussed, micro-regional differences between distilleries that you visited. What was your impression? Yeah, I think it was kind of all over the place. Um, I mean, there's those sort of regional differences you're talking about. Um, so the, the first place we went was Kagoshima, which is kind of, I think, probably the most famous for shochu, definitely for sweet potato shochu. Mm. Um, it's really famous for that. Um, so we visited, it was really funny. Um, there's a... Uh, a massive, massive, massive producer. The biggest alcohol production facility I've ever been to was our like one of our first stops there. Um, and then it it's like this campus. I mean, like we didn't initially know where to go because we we're driving up in the car and it's like blocks and blocks of these buildings. And we're like, where do we go to meet them? Like it's just <laughs> these big empty buildings. And we're like, where are we going? It's like Amazon warehouse kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was huge. And I mean, they had these like robots that were you know like packing up the. Um, you know, putting the bottles and, and putting the the um, the, the cases of, of shochu on pallets and whatnot. It was just, I'd never seen anything at that scale before. And then literally, they surrounded what I think is the tiniest distillery in Kagoshima. Uh, mm. Yamato Zakura, you mentioned. Um, mm. uh, Tekan, um, he, he actually, that thing you were talking about, working in marketing in Tokyo and then going back to take over his mm. family distillery. Um, he, he did that, from what I understand. Um, and it was shocking to me because I have uh, Stephen Lyman, who you mentioned. Um, mm. He works there every year and right. has told me a lot about them. And I've tasted some stuff here in the U.S. You know, it's not available now. Stephen will just hand carry it back, that kind of thing. And then we were there and they're like, oh, um, maybe we should go say hi to Tekan. And I was like, what? Like, Tekon, like the guy from Yamaha's career? They're like, yeah, it's right over there. And they pointed across the street to this <laughs> tiny little building. And I was like, wait a minute. One of the biggest places I've ever been, and literally right next door, is one of the tiniest wow. in all of Kagoshima. It was wild. Um, so to answer your question about regional variation, <laughs> which I, sorry, I got <laughs> off topic there. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw... Um, a bit sort of moving. I mean, Kagoshima is a lot of sweet potato. Iki Island is really famous uh, for barley mm. shochu. Um, they've got a very, there's sort of an Iki style it's known where it's it's two thirds barley, one third rice is huh. sort of the um, the mix. Um, so we, we went to a few uh, producers on Iki that make it in that style. So they're really well known for their barley shochu there. Um, other things, yeah, it was uh, kind of all over the place. Um, it, I, I didn't really find, I mean, since we were, we weren't visiting, I think, necessarily iconic breweries of each area. It was mm -hmm. just sort of, um, you know, uh, people who were interested in, in working with us. So it was kind of a um, just sort of all over the place um, mm. in terms of what people were making. Right. Um, it'd be interesting to do sort of like visit some of the biggest or most well-known ones, right. which I haven't done yet. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the coolest distilleries Jamie visited on his trip and discover deeper. So please stay with us. Great. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. The knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal 
bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Taima, and my guest today is Jamie Graves, who is a Japanese portfolio manager at Skarnik Wines, which is a leading wine and spirits importer and distributor based in New York City. So, um, so as we said, let's talk about uh, specific distilleries. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's start with, uh, you gave me a couple interesting mm-hmm. uh, distilleries. Yanagida Shuzo. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think? It's Yanagita. Yes. Um, so yes, I, I'd say um, one thing that was kind of a, a really interesting uh, part of the trip was uh, we work at, at Skernik, we work with um, five different uh, shochu distilleries. Four of them are from Miyazaki, mm. uh, which I was able to visit all four of those on this trip. And then one is in Saga uh, called Mune Masa, which they make um, Mizu Shochu, which is available here in New York. Um, kind of an awesome project. Uh, mm. Some people we work with, it's sort of meant for the American cocktail market. Um, so I unfortunately didn't have a chance to visit those guys. Right, well, Jesse, uh, yeah. who is the founder, came yeah. here and then talked. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely right. Jesse should have been here. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse Fowlitz, yeah, he's, I've known him for years. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't get to visit those guys, but um, visited these four Miyazaki makers, including Yanagita, you mentioned. And out of all of the people we visited on the trip, um, it was kind of this tremendous, I don't know if it was a sense of relief, but I was just so impressed that the four people that we work with were by far the four most impressive um, on the trip. Like, I thought they were doing the most interesting things. All those things I mentioned at the beginning about what do you look for, these guys all had it. Like, each one is very different, had a very different specific vision for what they want to do. Um, so their, their styles don't overlap and they're all passionate and they're all really excited about what they're doing. Um, so it was just really exciting to see that. So, uh, Yanagita specifically, um, he is just a ball of energy. Um, it's hard to say, I didn't realize how old the guy was. I think he's almost 50, but, uh, and most of the other guys, uh, these other three Miyazaki makers are all in their thirties or so. And Mm. you don't even notice it. He's just so like bouncing off the walls and full of energy. Um, he has this, um, it's again each of the the identities of these places is so distinct. Um, he was an engineer at um, Xerox for about ten years wow. uh, before he took over his family distillery, and that really informs everything that he does. Um, he mentioned when we were visiting and uh, talking to him, and he said, "Yeah, as a kid, he was just obsessed with taking things apart and learning how they work." He said he always had a <laughs> screwdriver in his pocket when he was a kid, <laughs> so he could just take things apart and kind of learn how they worked. So you visit him, and it's this kind of small, you know. Uh, really like beautiful, tidy um, family distillery. And he's pointing things out. And as he walks you through, you realize he's custom built most of the distillery himself. Wow. So you're in the fermenting room and he's sort of showing like, yeah, we had some carpenters come in here and like do these wooden walls for us. And you're like, oh, okay. And then he points at a panel on the side that's got a little digital display for the temperature. And he's like, and I built this uh, temperature control system. For <laughs> like he didn't just design, like he designed and built it and installed it himself. And then the same thing with his still. Like um, I, you know, this was really my first time getting deep into spirits. Um, I, I still need to learn a lot more about stills and how they work and all, all these things. Um, so I, I definitely was a little bit more of an amateur on that level, but, um, he had completely customized his still. And when I 
visited other uh, producers and sort of mentioned like, oh, do you customize your still at all? And they're like, no. You know, they were, it, to them, it's, it's the most expensive, most important piece of equipment in their distillery. And they're terrified of, you know, messing with it. Mm. Um, so they'll have either an expert come in or someone from the company, if there's something wrong with it, will come and do repairs and whatnot. This guy is completely unafraid to completely just jury rig his whole thing and he could do things like switch it from um what's called a vacuum still a low pressure still to an atmospheric closer to a pot still um just with a few adjustments he can direct the jets in the still so mm. that um the the spirit can taste really toasty and mm. nutty like he does mostly barley shochu pretty much all barley shochu and you can taste some from them that are really light and pretty and then some that are super roasty and it's not that he's roasted the barley it's the way he directs the the distillate flowing through the still itself and i've talked to other people about this other distillers who were you know master master craftsmen they're like oh yeah we don't like <laughs> he understands the nuts and bolts of the process better than almost anybody mm. like on a on a because he does have this very much engineering scientific background it's like an, well not to mention it's like very uh, precision machinery based engineering as yeah. he spent 10 years right so yeah <laughs> he can do anything exactly it's, it's pretty it was fascinating visiting him and like everything has its right place um he even designed like the tanks are for the length of his arms so mm. when they filter they don't do heavy filtering on some things he built these custom horsehair filters um, it looks like a like a sieve or something like a round, mm. you know, wooden kind of ring, and then there's horsehair in the middle that acts as a filter, and he'll just run this over the top of the tanks to give a very light filtering to it. And he said, "Oh yeah, it took me years to get these designed and built. Like horsehair picks up oil really well, so it's good for filtering." And then he mentioned like the size of the tanks were designed exactly mm. for the length of his arms, right. so he can reach across and it's very very easy. Like he's literally thought about all these things. It's crazy. Mm. So the in modern technology is advancing. The very tradition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's very hands-on, but he's doing it in a way that he can still have this very hands-on craftsmanship thing, but he's doing it in, like, the most efficient way mm. um, possible, in a way that really produces really great sort of interesting spirits. Right. So that's Yanagita Shuzo. Yanagita Shuzo, yeah. Okay. And uh, so next is Watanabe uh, Shuzojo. Yes. Right. So these guys could not be more different. Like, probably in the, um, the four that we visited Miyazaki. I think we visited, it was Yanagita in the morning on one day and then Watanabe in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, and the contrast is, it, it's almost hysterical. Because um, <laughs> Watanabe, um, he, I mean, they specialize in barley, or in, sorry, sweet potato, chochu. Mm -hmm. um, so they're really a working family farm. Uh, it's the fourth generation. The, the Watanabe brothers um, do it right now. And they're all, they mostly just talk about the farming. They talk about how they grow all their own sweet potatoes for it, um, that they put all this kind of energy into that. And then their, um, their facilities, it, it's almost like a, just like a shack by like <laughs> the side of the, the like it's, it's connected to the family home and it's, you know, they've got this modern equipment and everything, but it's not, it doesn't feel like you're in some kind of like a modern mm. um, distillery. It's, it's just, it literally feels like a barn next to their field. Wow. Um, and they even do, I mean, his philosophy, I've never heard of anybody else doing this in shochu. Um, they do spontaneous fermentation. So not using a specific yeast. They literally, when they're fermenting the sweet potatoes and everything together, he just opens up the window next to the tank <laughs> and lets the air in and just let, lets it rip. Wow. And he pointed out there's a little orange building like just sort of next to the field. And he points out that's like, that's where they make a tsukemono pickles. It's a little <laughs> local producer. And he's like, he's like, that's been there about 60 years. And we think we've been trading microbes 
with the fermentation from those pickles and our shochu for about 60 years. Oh, that's fascinating. Because it's literally the wind blows across from that building towards the tanks. Mm. Um, and like nobody else really does stuff like that in the shochu right. world that I've heard of. It's, it's much more controlling it. And these guys are, are much more like, hey, we've now that we've made the potatoes, we want to just let it rip. They're very inspired by, um, they took a trip to Burgundy and mm. were uh, very inspired by kind of winemaking there and sort of had this idea of, yeah, we're, you know, seeing sort of the, the vineyards in Burgundy and seeing how, how much pride people took in that. These guys mm. were like... It's like a wine is made in the yard, vineyard. Yeah. Not in any other kind of mindset. Exactly. These guys very much have that mindset. And mm. he, he talks about that quite a bit. Well, I actually saw the website. They, they're really into making the soil perfectly for, yeah. as a ground for growing um, the, uh, the potatoes. And almost no pesticides or anything. Yeah. They, mm. I, I talked to him about that. They're not able to get 100% organic, I think, because of some fields around them. But mm. they're, I mean, their techniques are like absolutely just, I mean... You know, very, very organic, very hands-on. I mean, they they talk about the farming primarily, mm. um, and actually, they're great to follow on Instagram. If you follow, I think it's Watanabe Distillery on Instagram, and you know, he's 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 very good about posting stuff. And you see them like tilling the fields, and you see them um, going through the whole process. And then when it gets to the the fall and um, like September, October, when they start distilling, you get to see them like pouring all the you know the, all the potatoes they've been growing all year into these fermenting tanks and it's mm. it's a really it's, it's i think it's one of the best instagram feeds out there to learn about shochu okay sort of see so it up it's a watanabe distillery yes yeah i'll definitely yeah. look up so well that's an interesting contrast well high tech to totally like almost biodynamic approach of yeah it's very much like farming. an engineering mindset versus right. like this sort of farmer mindset right so the next one is a uh, kroki honten yes um, Kuroki Honten is interesting. They were the biggest of the Miyazaki ones that we visited, not the biggest of the makers. Um, they are um, kind of the most uh, prominent in Japan. They've got a barley shochu that they make called Nakanaka, which you see everywhere in Japan. Um, mostly, I mean, not big, big places, but I, I noticed a lot on this trip because I had my kind of eyes peeled for it. Actually, also, I was there in January and I had my eyes peeled looking around for mm. um, these, you know, these shochu brands. And I noticed Nakanaki, you, you find in small, like really um, sort of great little Japanese restaurants, you see that's kind of a great barley shochu option. You see a lot. Mm. Um, so they've kind of benefited the most from that shochu boom I was talking about about 20 years ago. Um, for whatever reason, Nakanaka really took off. They've got another one called Hyakunen no Kodoku, which is considered, I've been told it's considered one of the three great high-end shochus mm. in Japan. It's, it's aged in um, ex, uh, it's aged in American oak um, for a mix of three to five years or actually hold a bunch of different mixing, but that's um, kind of known for these very high-end um, shochu. Shochu is always considered a very kind of inexpensive spirit. And that was mm. one of the few that sort of broke this image of um, it just had to be cheap. You could have high-end ones. Mm. So they, based on those two, um, are kind of the most well-known throughout the country. Uh, but what I found really interesting about them is a lot of these shochu makers in this boom, they suddenly got big sales and they got a lot of money out of it. And they, a lot of people just pushed that back into like, all right, cool, let's like double the size of the distillery so we can make more and, you know, make more money, which makes sense. Um, these guys put their money back into quality. So what they did is they bought uh, at that time, I think it was about 18, 20 years ago, they, they took a lot of the money they were making and bought 43 hectares of local farmland and started, uh, I think it's a separate company, I mean, same parent company, but separate organization from the distillery that just does organic farming mm. for as much of their ingredients as they can do on that. Uh -huh. um, and when I asked him about it, like, oh, this is more cost effective. He's like, no, this is way more expensive. <laughs> it's much easier to just buy it from somebody else um, mm. and cheaper and easier and all these things. But 
you know, you get the sense they're in these kind of local um, areas. And, and he's like, we felt strongly about this. We want to promote local organic agriculture. You know, it's mm. something we felt strongly about. Like now that we, now that they had the money and the means to do so, it's like, well, you know, put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Mm. Um, and they they doubled down on that. So they, they farm a ton of their own ingredients. Um, it's on a bigger scale than the Watanabe brothers. Um, um, you can sort of see that they've got, I think his, his uh, Kuroki-san's, younger brother I think is running that um, mm. right now they sort of work side by side with that and the other thing is they did this they built a second distillery but not really to create more volume um, they built it basically on the top of this mountain to get access to a really beautiful water source and it's out just in the middle of the woods mm. I mean there's like nothing around there it's one it's was I mean it, you step out of the car to get there and it's it's one of those like idyllic scenes where you suddenly you just let out like a sigh of relief and you're like oh i didn't realize how stressed out i was until i like came to this <laughs> beautiful mountaintop where they built this thing and that's where they do 100 percent handmade um shochu they do the koji by hand um, mm. there's no real automation up there and it's a beautiful building it's kind of this this mix of like um traditional japanese architecture with a very kind of beautiful clean modern aesthetic but it looks really good on the, the mountaintop um and that was really just for quality they're making some really high-end ones there mm. um so that's their Yama series. They, they all called Yama something. So Yama Neko, Yamazaru mm. are the brands of shochu made up there. And there's one called Yama Semi uh, that we have available here in the U.S. That's mm. a, a really great rice uh, rice shochu. I think one of the prettiest examples of a rice shochu here in the U.S. Well, that's very promising, right? Like, you know, the I think uh, American import of Japanese second to be growing by um, value, mm -hmm. not rather than volume, by volume, because mm -hmm. the quality is going up mm. and people appreciate the higher quality ready to pay for it some sounds like it's the same thing happening with the shochu industry yeah i think it very much parallels what's happening with sake where there are these really huge producers that you know it's super inexpensive and um you know some of them are quite good um but more so these smaller ones are really doubling down on quality and kind of interesting things and there's all kind of new interesting crazy things going on with shochu um i was learning about um, which actually segues me. I know we're kind of going through the, the four I visited um, to maybe not jump ahead, but Toji uh, Junpei, uh, mm. Kodama Shizo, mm -hmm. um, which is actually an interesting thing. Um, he is um, doing a lot of interesting things. He, he's the smallest, <coughs> excuse me, out of the four. Just the Kodama Jozo. Kod Kodama Jozo, that's right. right. Um, he's the smallest out of the four in Miyazaki. Um, it's pretty much him and a few helpers. Um, Junpei Kanemaru is the name of the, uh, the Toji, the, the uh, master distiller there. And he's, um, they, they don't have the, the resources to, um, do their, to make their own potatoes, but they, they get them all locally. Um, and he's doing a lot of interesting things that the thing I was talking about with orange, um, looking sweet potatoes where the, mm -hmm. the flesh is, you know, basically the color of a carrot. Um, those taste amazingly like carrots. Huh. And there's this thing going on now. Apparently it's just the past few years where, um, Sweet potatoes for shochu—they're uh, not—they're um, not as shelf stable as regular sweet potatoes. You can't just buy it and put it on the supermarket shelf and let it sit there for a bit. Like they—they they basically rot within a couple days. Oh, because uh, it's more moist. Uh, higher pressure. starch content because oh. because you want to get starches for sugars for alcohol. So mm. obviously they're maximizing, you know, what you can get out of that. And I think that's what makes them more unstable. Like they, they'll just basically rot apparently within three days. And mm. traditionally what people would do is you get them in and you know, the, um, what you see, unfortunately I wasn't there during uh, sweet potato season, but when it's sweet potato season in the fall, <clears throat> they come in first thing you do in the day is that sweet potatoes come in and you just wash them and sort of cut out any, you know, undesirable spots, um, whether hard spots or, or rotting spots or something, and then, you know, ferment them as quickly as possible. Mm. And what, I've heard about people doing recently now is um, actually letting them sit 
for a little bit longer and letting them get not rot, but kind of almost um, start to develop Mm. a bit. And this was traditionally nobody would ever do this. And then when you distill those, you get this incredibly distinct lychee quality out of them. It's like very pretty and floral and just absolutely wild. And again, you would never guess that it's made from sweet potatoes, but it's this thing that I guess one distillery started doing a couple, um, a couple of years ago. And then, um, you know, it, it was against, again, it was against what everybody was doing. The, the idea was fresh, fresh, fresh. And then these people started doing this. And now this is like very much a micro trend within mm. the chochu industry to so do it's these kind like, of aging. The yeah. I, I actually, the word is escaping me of to actually not, not fermenting obviously, but sort of, um, Juxe. Mm. Juxe. The Japanese is coming first. Right, right, right. <laughs> Juxe. So that's yeah. basically it's a aging, maturing. Aging. Maturing, yeah. Maturing the potatoes. And then you get this very mm. wildly pretty um, quality out of it. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And lychee. <laughs> yeah, lychee. It's, 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 it's distinctly like everybody smells it or tastes it. And they're like, that tastes like lychee. Mm. Um, so yeah, he, I mean, his facility is fascinating um really small like i said very traditional um not much new equipment he does all his koji by hand um most koji as i learned on this trip most koji for shochu is done in what's called a they just call a dramu just a drum Mm. it's a very big kind of um machine i still don't fully understand how they work but you know traditionally koji made by hand you put the mold on the steamed rice Mm. um have it in sort of a special room and sort of work it over um but i think because shochu is distilled they don't need to take as much care you can still get something really delicious out of it that mm. being said there's a lot of uh, if you see a handmade chochu that's what that means generally is they made the, the koji by hand so 100 mm. percent of his koji is by hand um and his i mean his whole operation just looks like mm. from another time i mean a lot of times if you visit uh breweries or distilleries and you see a um you see the shrine in mm. there like there'll be some kind of uh you know it's a, it's a very important shrine for making alcohol and they'll have visited and his was like this old it was like made from stone and it was like behind a bunch of the fermenting tanks. Like you were, as I was speaking through, I was like, Oh, is that where your, you know, local kind of altar um, mm. is for the, uh, for this thing? He's like, Oh yeah. And, and we're like, it, it was very old and kind of worn looking. And he's like, I don't know. It's from sometime in the 19th century. We don't know r- really <laughs> what it's from. It's, it was just wild. Like visiting him is like stepping back in time. Mm. And he's very, but he makes very, these very light, pretty kind of modern, Right. Styles, those sort of pretty floral type things. Well, I heard that the, the originally that this family used to have like five generations of kura, like mm. distillery making sake and the, the shochu, but it's kind of died mm. and then revived. So it's kind of like really new, but it's very old too. Yeah, I mean, he's interesting because he's the only guy I've visited who is at one of these small family distilleries who chose it himself. Mm. So he comes from a long distilling family. They closed their distillery, I think, in the 80s when he was in like high school or something. Mm. And then he went to college, I believe. And he, when he was thinking about what he wanted to do, he's like, you know what? I want to make shochu. Whereas many of these other people, it's like an obligation from your parents. Um, mm. You know, it's really expected of you. Um, whereas for him, he actively chose it. And I think he's um, he's really apparently beloved within the shochu industry because because he made that specific choice. Mm. Um, and he's so, he's so small in craft and is doing such great things. Wow. Yeah. So very inspiring. We just only talk about four, but four of them... Each of them doing something different and yeah. very forward-minded people. It's funny. They're all really good friends, actually. So they, they tend to travel as a group when they go for sales. Huh. Um, they actually will probably be here in March um, for Skernicta's really big tasting. And they've come for the past two years, um, which is amazing because, you know, for sake, um, shochu is still so small and they're really interested in the U.S. market. But these four guys actively make the trip mm. from all the way from Miyazaki, which is, you know, very provincial Japan, to come to New York City just for that 
show. Um, and it's great to have them here. I mean, they're, they're really exciting. And um, I always try to funnel people their way at this big trade show where there's so many options to taste and do things. And I'm like, you know, it's a minor miracle that we're starting to make these connections now. Mm. Like it's so, you know, the distances and the culture is so kind of vastly different. I think it's amazing to be able to. Thank you, Skynik. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, So, well, right now though, um, how is soju being received in this country, in the U.S.? Um, Well, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, it's mostly unknown. Um, For the most part, people have heard of soju, Korean soju. Um, They confuse the two. Obviously, they they sound quite similar. Um, Korean soju, pretty much what we see here is very mass-produced. I mean, there's a great soju we were just talking about before the, you know, before we started recording here, Toki soju that's made in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, it's kind of this big mass-produced stuff. Um, Shochu is, um, you know, there's some big, big ones, but like I said, the Honkaku ones we're talking about, very Mm -hmm. small and artisanal. Um, So people are kind of confused as to what it is generally. Right. Well, the industry too, uh, you know, Japan and Korea, Shochu industry is really targeted more for higher and premium status mm. versus soju. It's more like, you know, to the public kind of. Yeah. So that's the orientation, like objective of the whole industry. So that's a big difference. I think so, yeah. I mean, shochu does have a very kind of... um, accessible kind of working class feel to it to me especially coming from sake sake's got this very kind of elite right. feel it showed you even the very high end ones and they're they're very just kind of you know no yeah. nonsense i loved southern japan they were so warm and friendly and just direct in the way they yeah, talked they laid back right yeah, yeah it's you know it's um anyway yeah so received in the u.s i think mizu shochu actually did a tremendous job mm. um making the spirits and cocktail industry here aware of what you know what it is as a category what it is um they were really the first ones to um to really um push it to outside of the the japanese venues and really try to get it to a general market mm. um i've talked to a lot of shochu makers in japan that you know they're all aware of what mizu's done here um so that's kind of gotten it aware particularly in new york here instead of the spirits and cocktail world mm. um so people are it's kind of where sake was about 10 years ago which is people are just starting to learn that it's good right. and that it's and that it's a thing that exists. Mm. Um, and I think spirits and cocktail people are always looking for kind of something something new, something to you know set us um, uh, to really set them apart um, right. to sort of show like new cool things. And there's so much variety in shochu that I think there's a ton of interest right now. Mm. Um, but you know, again, we haven't really made many of those connections yet. Right. Well, we have only a few minutes left. Of that, I really want to mention, mm. you know, the recently uh, you co-organized a shochu cocktail competition in New York. So. That's kind of like interesting. Yeah, that was a great thing. I mean, I, I, I feel I was more along for the ride uh, for that. Um, the people from Mizu Shochu did a ton with that. We worked with some people from Mutual Trading. Um, and so it was really meant to promote Shochu overall. It wasn't about any one specific brand. I mean, we want to make people more aware of it as a thing and all the, the variation and quality out there. So um, what was it? Seven different producers we worked with. Um, and yeah, promoted the cocktail competition to American bartenders um, to come up with an original Shochu cocktail that... Show, uh, that showcases the spirit itself that doesn't mm. just overwhelm it. Um, right, but the, the 14 finalists, I happened to, yeah. I got lucky to serve as a judge, but I was blown away how creatively mm. each one of them. Yeah, I, I, I think we were we were very nervous that a lot that um, we'd just see like cheesy things like, oh, well, it's a daiquiri, but made with shochu, where it's like, you know, if, if you were to do that, that would just end up tasting like, you know, just lime and, and sugar and everything. Mm. Uh, whereas... People were very good about understanding kind of the lighter touch 
is mm. better so to, to really have that the the um, uniqueness of shochu come through um we were really impressed with the submissions right. overall um it was pretty hard that um you know the, the grand prize was was two trips to japan for the top two cocktails and there was a ton that didn't make it we were like man we would have loved to you know have those people go as well mm. it, was, it was a pretty tough competition as you know you were a judge so it was a pretty tough competition overall. right so um i hope you're going to continue the competition from now on every year yeah. <laughs> so yeah please and uh, so, uh, to this is my last question. So, mm. what what do you hope for the future of shochu outside of Japan? Yeah, I mean, it's something that um, I mean, I personally just love the stuff. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I sort of took a uh, a break from it for so long. It's what I drank when I was there, and then I came back to the U.S. And I remember when I first came back to the U.S., I was I was looking for shochu like mm. all over the place in New York, and I couldn't really find it. You know, there wasn't that much out there. There weren't bars, weren't really serving it at all. Um, and then, so it, it just kind of got, you know, pushed aside and I, I didn't think about it as much. And then uh, when I was at Sakamai, we suddenly had all this shochu and it was a, a big part of what we were doing. We had all these shochu, um, really big fans started showing up. Um, so that got me back into it. And it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it, it's something I, I, I love personally to drink. Um, I would love to get it more widely known. Um, I mean, the dream is to, be able to have it. Um, honestly, the thing we always talk about is mezcal and how mezcal was like known in the U.S. Or if it was known, it was a joke. It was like this very harsh Mexican spirit. And now it's like if you're a serious bar, you need, you know, some bottles of mezcal mm. back there. And that's kind of the dream to me of Shochu is to like be able to have it appreciated and represented like mm. very broadly. And I think it has that potential. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's depth and um, I mean surprises. Each bottle has different magic and yeah. stories so i know i've encountered some just random people who discover it randomly in japan um and this was when i was working at restaurants and it'd be just sort of you know very american couples would show up and they're like what do you have for shochu and be like oh how'd you get into it they're like oh we discovered in japan it's our favorite thing to drink and there's not a ton of people like that out there but there's enough that i think you can you know you can mm, build on that right and you can lose weight in three months 12 pounds yeah i mean that's <laughs> you know it's, it's healthy it's uh it's everything yeah <laughs> the full package right all right, so uh, where can we find your update online? Um, yes, yeah, so I um, probably Instagram uh, is is where I do the most um, posting. So that's Jamie F. Graves, uh, at Jamie F. Graves on Instagram. Um, and then I write, uh, Skernick has a really great uh, blog on our website, um, which goes deep into uh, winemakers and spirits makers. And I occasionally um, will do Japan posts uh, there. I have a, a real one I, I really... Uh, happy about uh, that sort of an intro to Shochu, which is kind of a nice little basic intro to the subject. Mm. Um, so you can find that at skernick.com and go to the blog there. Okay, yep. cool. All right, so I hope you come back and talk more about what, what we do. It sounds like uh, you are discovering so many different things. Um, so. Yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah. Um, maybe once we start getting small and interesting things directly here, we can talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah keep me posted. Cool, definitely. All right, so thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, Jamie? So, uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show, uh, suggestions for shows, topics, or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritagevideonetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and are always available at heritagevideonetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.